0: You've got a a new sheet in front of you. We probably ought to review just a little bit so that we see where we've been and see where we're going. Uh, my first study on the history, once we got done with pietism, Uh, dealt with the early Lutherans on the Hudson River, the Delaware River. Uh, We saw how the Pennsylvania ministerium uh, was grouping together those individuals that had come over. Uh, In particular, Henry Melkor Muhlenberg was going up and down uh, the colonies, uh, trying to unite the Lutherans together. That was the first kind of lecture. Uh, the second lecture, we saw that those who were here, as they had formed denominations, senates, you would say, groups of Lutherans together, uh, it was primarily by geographical region, the Senate of Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, New York, uh, The Pennsylvania Ministerium was actually much farther and and bigger than Pennsylvania and was starting to uh, work together with others. They wanted to form a general senate in which all of these groups might be uh, united together, that is, could work together, whether it was for mission work or seminary work or hymnal work, uh, of these kind of things. However... uh, Paul Henkel and then his uh, sons in what was originally the North Carolina Senate, later to become the Tennessee Senate as they uh, split off from them, uh, were rather upset about the confessional standard which they were uh, proposing. We saw the definite platform, that recension of the Augsburg Confession Uh, in which, on the one hand, they talked about how good it was. On the other hand, they talked about the errors that were found in it and how they were going to get rid of it. Uh, And, uh, um, interesting enough, uh, private confession, baptism, and Lord's Supper were all on the list of errors, which pretty well left you without a uh, uh, sacramental understanding in Lutheranism, which makes you go, what, what uses it to be a Lutheran anyway? We saw that their uh, sons and those that followed after, ones like Beal uh, Melanchthon Schmucker and Charles Porterfield Krauth, uh, were uh, bulwarks of, of supporting confessional causes much of this came about at the uh, 1830 or the 300-year anniversary of the Augsburg Confession. They then formed a the general council uh, in opposition to the general synod, which was to, this general council was to be more uh, Lutheran, hold to the confessions. We talked about the Akron-Galesburg rule, things like Lutheran pulpits for Lutheran pastors only, and... Uh, Lutheran altars are for Lutheran communicants only. And so that's as far as we got last week. The new sheet that you have, and I said we're going to take a look at immigration now. Before this, there were individuals that came, and occasionally churches would send a pastor over for a time to kind of help out, but by and large there weren't a lot of organizations, or they were trying to organize, and uh, many of them didn't have pastors. They would talk about how they would go a year without ever hearing a sermon until someone came passing through. And he may or may not, he may have claimed to be Lutheran, but he may or may not have been Lutheran. There were a lot of imposters and things of that sort. But uh, we're now at a time in which there are groups of people immigrating. Either they're immigrating as a whole, there may be uh, hundreds or up to you know, a thousand or so that might come, bring their pastor with them, and they all might employ an immigration company to come and settle and, and begin a new life here. Or it simply was uh, not just occasional, but, but over a period of, oh, uh, ten years, There were some areas that that immigrated 100,000 people uh, from their from their countries. So we're going to take a look at that today. Probably, uh, you pretty well. I could probably break this up into three classes. I'm going to do it all in one. Uh, um, The first, I'm going to group together the Norwegian and the Swedish immigration. I'm going to tell you this is what I know the least about, um, but this is kind of the Scandinavian countries, and um, you need to know just a little bit about that. Concerning the German immigration, I broke it up into two, um, and those are pretty distinct Uh, You've got the Prussian Immigration uh, with Brabau. You've got the Saxon Immigration, which is probably most familiar to us with the Missouri Senate uh, and Martin Stefan coming over along with Pastor uh, Walther, that kind of thing. So primarily, I've got three classes today. I'm gonna do Scandinavian, I'm gonna do Prussian. We're gonna do Saxon Immigration. Uh, if we have time I'm also going to uh, show you a little five-minute uh, uh, movie that deals with the Saxon immigration uh, just a little part of it I thought I thought it was I thought it was interesting so we'll we'll take a look at that as well let's get started um, Norwegian immigration I mentioned before that in Uh, Sweden, Norway, kind of together, they were historically behind in pietism. Pietism had infected Germany uh, 100, 150 years earlier, and uh, Norway was kind of catching up with it. And... um, I'll try to... keep up. Um... With Pietism, you also had uh, rationalism uh, as well. 1741, going back quite a bit, they had a, a conventicle act. Conventicle act are these small groups that were getting together. It was a result of Pietism. Uh, the idea is that by getting these small groups together. That uh, only the enlightened, the saved ones, the ones who were exhibiting holiness in their life, uh, would gather together to, to study God's Word. Uh, this was apart from uh, pastoral leadership. The 1741 Act, um, its chief purpose, quote, to protect those who evinced true solicitude of the edification of themselves and others from persecution. Hmm. We wanted to... Uh, uh, they, they envisioned the pietists gathering together as persecuting the regular church members. I don't know if persecution is probably a too strong a word, but uh, uh, that was the idea. Uh, And secondly, to prevent the disorder arising from those under the cloak of greater religiousness who left their natural calling and wandered about from place to place as preachers without having a divine or a human call to do so. So, there were those who were subverting the church. Now, the church was underneath the government, and the government supported it, the government regulated it, how did it do this? There would be a church order that would be published, um, in which this is the uh, laws of the constitution by which the pastors were to do things. What uh, in that they would also have a uh, a liturgy published, um, in an agenda was called that the pastors were to follow as they led service. They, this was not up to them. There may be hymnals. That is, for the lay people, the hymns were in there, and that was what to be used. And so it was set up. Well, their concern is that what's going on? Well, if I'm in the state and I want to make sure that everything is regular and normal and it's going the way it is, what about these secret pastors that are coming around? Pastors, I say, not ordained guys. Coming around, gathering people, teaching them little (laughs) things. This is disorder. And so even in Norway, this was gone... Uh, was was happening what about a man named Hans Nielsen Hauge 1771 to 1824 raised a farmer his upbringing consisted in a regular reading of scripture and devotional works including those of Johann Arndt remember him pietist all the way back uh, um, around Luther's time It included the singing and memorization of Lutheran hymnody and other generally healthy Christian practices. His family, being regular churchgoers, his upbringing taught him to take his faith seriously. So much so, he was considered uh, considered odd by his friends and acquaintances. He was a regular object of their ridicule. He was granted perseverance in his faith. At the age of 25, in 1796, singing a hymn, While working his father's fields, he was overwhelmed by a spiritual experience, prompting him to pray, Lord, what wilt thou that I should do? Whereupon he was reminded of the prophet's words, Here I am, Lord, send me. So he went to the people of his own nation in whom he saw so much vice, need for faith and repentance, as a lay evangelist intent on preaching the way of salvation through repentance and conversion, and to do so reverently as a servant of the church, yet how he had no call to preach. At first he did so haltingly with reticence, but as time progressed he discovered the approval of those who heard him as he saw them repent of their sins, embrace their Savior, he grew more bold and confident, he wrote many devotional books, he preached both publicly and privately on many occasions, traveling from one end of Norway to the other. In the process, he was a national sensation. One could say that many good things resulted. Many people were turned to Christ. <coughs> Havi, being a very bright man, kept uh, keen on recent developments in farming and gifted with business acumen, also freely assisted his countrymen in their temporal needs publishing books, offering business and farming advice, even taking part in the creation of several industries. Many people were lifted out of poverty as a result, yet having no call to do so, he continued to carry out the functions of the pastoral office. He abandoned his own vocational calling to do so, and the church then took notice. So did the state, and how he, despite all the good, it may be said that he had done and was doing, did not have in his possession a divine call to carry out the functions of the pastoral office. He was in violation of the Conventicle Act of 1741. And he was in violation of scripture because that required a call. In 1804, with several short incarcerations already behind him, how he was arrested for a tenth and a final time, and for ten years he remained in prison, not finding, a, not uh, receiving a finding from the court commission until 1808, which found him guilty of the following crimes: he violated the conventicle act of 1741; he tried to form a sect and a communistic society; three, he encouraged the young people to break the conventicle act and he had in his writings, contempt for the official ministry. It resulted in a trial late in 1813, the verdict of which was rendered a year later, and in 1814, finding how he guilty of having preached the word of God and encouraging others to do the same, and heaping scorn on the ministry for which he was ordered to pay $1,000, plus the cost of the trial, and he was released from prison. <laughs> yes yeah. uh, after you reading that last thing I don't know if my question is the same but it, it would have been if what he was lacking was a call would he not be allowed to, I want to say allowed not by not by uh, the Norwegians who liked having the government in charge but he couldn't form his own um A congregation that could give him a call? That would be illegal. The congregations are under the state church. And the state church organized and allowed things and regulated it. And so, if that is what he wanted, he would have to go to the university. He would have to then appeal to the state to get a call and to be brought into this. Um, This is not what he wanted to do. The land of the free is... Well, double-edged the, sword here. Yeah, they were not in the land of the free. Wow. That, that's the difference. I mean, we're talking about Europe, so oh, things are was different. In Europe? I thought all we were, of that is in Norway. Oh, I'm in Europe. sorry, I thought we were talking about here. No, After all of this is over. Um, Scratch that. Then all of this is up in uh, Norway. So in the world, we're up in the Scandinavian countries. Okay. Um, this is where we are. Um, this is what. Uh, this is what formed and I I read that entire account so you get a little bit of feel for it Um, this is what is behind the Norwegian Lutherans there was as they responded to rationalism as they responded to uh, that which had entered the church how did they well this pietism rose up and it manifested itself in a lay-oriented response. And so he is the first, and I'm going to say he is kind of a hero in Norwegianism for how can you take back the church? How can And again, his concern was repentance, forgiveness, and those kind of things, and yet, undermining the pastoral office um, and what was Um, Much more orthodox than rationalism, but combined uh, combined with with this heartfelt, pietistic kind of lay, this is what the Norwegians had. Um, When they came over, and, and where I'm going with this is, when they came over, this is what they formed. Now, um... Howie was imprisoned several times, and as things went forward, uh, you've got some uh, unusual ones. You've got Nikolai Grunvig, from which we get Grundvigianism. I just love that. (laughs) Bring that up at parties, impress your friends. Um... You know, when, when things are not following an order and, and, and go, you got some, cra- you know, people come up with crazy ideas. Uh, Nikolai Grunvig came up with this idea. Well, you've got the rationalists doing all this. Uh, denying of the scriptures, denying us supernatural you know, there's no reason for faith. You've got pietism, and it's all subjective and this heartfelt kind of thing. You've got Nicholas and, uh, Nielsen Hauge, who has kind of this lay emphasis, devotional kind of piety. Uh, Nikolai Grunvig said, yeah, that's not going to fix the church. The problem is, we have to go back and we have to trust the church. And so... Nikolai Grunvig said, We've got to return to our baptismal covenant. Uh no, so, Wait a minute, what are you talking about? Well, he's talking about the creed. <clears throat> and by talking about like the apostles' creed, he came along where where uh, a was, we're going to read the scriptures. And that's it. And and kind of what we would know as kind of a Baptist kind of, uh, everyone decides for themselves and, and, you know, you you kind of go out. Nikolai Grundig said, we need to elevate the creed over the scriptures. And we need to elevate the church over the scriptures. And so his was this kind of return to authority, but an authority in which it goes over the scriptures and if we only would get back to this authority, where Hauge had the lay, Nikolai messes it up. The, I mean, you know, as Luther says, the church is like the uh, uh, drunken peasant that can fall off both sides of the horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we have that happening. Um, third, Gisley-Johnson. Um he was a student of Harless, you might remember Harless was at the Erlanger School. The Erlanger School, during the time of the 300th anniversary and around this time, was republishing Luther's works. So the Erlanger edition, this is the edition that now people are starting to read and so you have this uh, return. Um, Gisli Johnson uh, is a part of the state church in Norway. Was a, a a man who again Pietism and Orthodoxy kind of went together, um, but he was trying to return to a state uh, church that that you might return that that the state church might be fixed, um, and he was trying to do that. By the time we get over to America, the Norwegians who are over here, similar to kind of our last, it's individuals they're all over the place. Now they're starting to uh, have those who are trying to bring them together. They bring with them this voluntary church, independent of the state. After Mary, some time of Hauge going out and those who followed him, the church started to allow this. In fact, started to kind of go, yeah, that's what it means to be Norwegian, lay preachers, right. And so that became a part of their uh, um, national uh, existence. But if you will. Only in the New World are you talking about now. Over well, it started in Norway with this, but when they came over here, they had no rules, and so they could fully mm. embrace it. And we've got those who did. We've got Elling uh went around lay preaching. He's the first Norwegian minister. Uh, he came over here, I'm not going like to look it up, it's 1840 or something like that. He's over here about three years before he finally is ordained, um, and is the first Norwegian Lutheran minister ordained in America. Uh, you've got another man, Klaus Loritz Clausen. I love the way the Norwegians do. You just kind of repeat, Hens, Hemsana, Henson, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, Klaus Clausen. um, he also is one of the uh, lay preachers from Norway going around. We'll come back to this. Uh, he ends up speaking with Graubau when we get to the Prussian, uh, uh, where the Prussian immigration. They come over and Graubau is, is one of those who, is, who has come over here as he is going uh, to uh, uh, his call. He talks with Grabau, as well as lets him know that uh, up, up where I'm going, we're going to be using lots of lay preachers. And Grabau has some concern about that, and we're going to see where he writes something. Um, Christian Dietrichson. Uh, this is the first one set by the state uh, church that would still have that connection. So most of these went over here, did whatever they want, set up their own thing. Dietrichson actually comes along with the church order, with the regulations from over in Europe, and tries to set things up over here. So you do have uh, some that are working with the state. Um, Immigration, you primarily have uh, three of them. Uh, Most of this is uh, up in Wisconsin. Up there, they have no... Pastors before 1843. You do have some that are in northern Illinois. Uh, Patty Baker was telling me her connection with, um, Someone who was a Norwegian Lutheran in Northern Illinois. I had Swedish Lutheran in Batavia, Illinois. Bingo. That's where it is. Right. And, and the other thing with Norwegian, if you get up into West Union, Iowa, which was Luther College, there was a whole <coughs> set of <coughs> Norwegian Lutherans up there. Correct. Right. Correct. Okay. Now back. not the state church in Norway. So the state church was basically Lutheran. So were there no other churches? I mean, no Catholic, no Reformed? It was the state church. And so it was in charge of that. I don't remember... I'm sorry, and again, this is the one I don't know as much about as some of the others. I don't know if there were... you know, In some places where Lutheranism became the state church, they did allow others to... Mm -hmm. You know like the Roman church to have a church and and to do some things like that in some places they didn 't i i 'm sorry i just don 't know um, i can 't really tell you um, all of these Scandinavians though uh, go together often you 'll find um, where our, our Norwegian will call uh, a Dane, someone from Denmark, to come and be their pastor, or Swedish, and, and back and forth. So there was this. I do mark, I sort of kind of grouped these together and put one to understand Scandinavian. avian. Uh, Swedish Immigration, um, I do have a couple different names. One, uh, Wisconsin area, Andover, Illinois. Um, many of these that came over at first were just looking for economics and things of that sort they had no land or anything that they could have in Europe so they came over for this nevertheless from Sweden you actually have uh, uh, still maintained some real Lutheran church orders and some real Lutheran services um that, that that they held to. Um, this is one of the few holdouts uh, coming over. But again, pietism was making its inroads, and once you got over to America, it didn't take long for that to go away. Um, we will find that when we get into hymn books and things of that sort, um, or into uh, church orders or. Uh, the... Uh, calling him a bishop and things of that sort it actually comes out of the Swedish church mm. alright um, usually we group all of those together mm. under Norwegians we do that because we're Germans and we can't tell the difference <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> just the way it is alright that's what, what I was think thinking when you yes. said something about the Danes I thought oh they're, they're being so liberal okay. including the Danes <laughs> alright that gets us to the first part uh, in half the time. Let's see how we can do. What about the... Any questions? Are you going to say anything more about uh, American fever with uh, under the Swedes, not all good Lutherans? Um, there were quite a few. Like other European countries, this <laughs> idea that America was a place of plenty and you could mm-hmm. get land, you could get that. Uh, they were... Um, mm-hmm. class was uh, your class within society was lined out pretty well in Sweden and so the opportunity to get land if your parents didn't have land or to mm-hmm. get things was not available mm-hmm. and that's what caused the American fever too and they lost and made a lot of people to immigration because of that mm-hmm. that's the only one Thank you. All right, German integration. Um, it's not all the same. Um, however, what we, uh, as I mentioned, Scandinavian, you know, you've got uh, Denmark, you've got Sweden, you've got all, all of those up here. When we come down to the bottom, I'm going to be talking about, um, let's see. I'm going to be talking about uh, areas that uh, aren't the same on our map. Um, You've got what we would call German areas, uh, uh, of course. Um, Saxony, where we're going to be talking about Martin Stephan and those who came over and formed uh, Missouri. Uh, We're going to talk about those from Prussia. Um, Magdeburg, you know, all of this area would have been would be Germany today. But uh, from Prussia is where, um, uh, I can't think, Grabau uh, comes from. We're going to have Grabau take some men from Silesia uh, over here, and those come together. Uh, Bohemia, Bavaria, um, all of these are are uh, are very similar. But the actual situation between Prussia and Saxony differed. What do we know about what was going on in Prussia? The Prussian king, Frederick William III, had attempted without success as early as 1798 to unite the Lutherans and the Reformed. And by Reformed, we mean the Calvinists. Okay? He became a Calvinist. And already in 1798, he was trying to uh, unite them together in his country so that they would all be one religion. And, well, if he's Reformed Calvinist, then they ought to be Reformed and Calvinists. And so he's trying to encourage this kind of thing. He uses, ready for this? He uses the 300th anniversary of the Augsburg Confession as an occasion to make the Lutherans Calvinists. To make the Lutherans (laughs) Calvinists, really? Um, And actually, I'm I'm not kidding you. He does it just like that, you know. Let's all, you know, celebrate this by all coming together and um, uh, doing the same thing. Um, by 1823, his, uh, all pastors are no longer being pledged to, now again, this is with the state being in charge, no longer pledging them to the Lutheran Confessions, but instead, the Confessions of Union. That is, they had other confessions that were vague enough that both the Lutherans and the Calvinists could... Profess together, which what that meant is the Lutherans gave up theirs and the Calvinists got to keep uh, up theirs. By 1830, they had allowed the use, outlawed the use of the words Lutheran and Reform. They were all to be the Prussian church and this uh, kind of union. By 1834, uh, they have published a new agenda. I talked about this agenda that tells the pastor, here's what you're to do, and it would have the order of service and things of this sort. Um, and it mandated for all of Prussia. To give you an example of this kind of thing, when it would get to the words of institution and the pastor would say the words of institution and then it got to the point in which you would uh, distribute the Lord's body and blood to the people. Well, the Calvinists don't believe that it's the body and blood of Christ. It just represents. The Lutherans believe it is the body and blood of Christ. So what they had come up with was a different formula it used to be this take eat the body of Christ given for you and now the new agenda said this Christ said this is my body given for you that makes it even stronger doesn't it no it's a complete denial because why well, it leaves it up to you to believe or not. Right. Who knows what you believe? You're a Lutheran and okay. you're a Calvinist. But Christ said it. Now you decide what you believe about it. So now all of a sudden, instead of the pastor declaring, this is the body of Christ, he says, Christ said it's the body of Christ. And that pastor <laughs> sounds like a total hypocrite when doing it. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, you're on the something with that. Yep. <laughs> it takes away from
1: the authority of the office of the keys
0: also. Sure. Because you're not speaking for Christ. Correct. You're repeating I'm just what kind Christ, of an Christ in, oh. There were things like this that thoroughly went through the agenda. Um, what happened? Uh, the good pastors complained. Um, uh, they tried to... Um, Resist. Uh, let's see here if I can. I can oh, um, hmm. By, oh, I see those who were in Bavaria, those who were in Silesia, uh, uh continue to, uh, resist, um, to complain, to, to, to try. Um, they would, in 1830, they had a petition. Uh, there was a law in the books that said that you could make a petition to immigrate and to leave. Mm-hmm. So they petitioned to leave, and they said no. <laughs> um, by, and so they continued to do this. By 1835, those pastors mm-hmm. who had refused... To conduct services mm-hmm. and perform ministerial acts according to the Union agenda, were imprisoned, mm-hmm. um, thrown into jail. Uh, Johannes, uh, Johannes Andreas August Grabau studied at Halle, ordained in 1835, came into open opposition to the Union in 1836. Mm-hmm. Uh, His refusal to use the agenda led to his imprisonment in 1837. With the help of two laymen, uh, he escaped, Mm -hmm. uh, continued to (coughs) preach and to make his way to Berlin, uh, Mm -hmm. often uh, leaving right before they found out he was preaching there and and getting. Finally, uh, in Pomerania, he was clandestinely uh, talking to small groups. Uh, In 1838, he was apprehended again and returned to uh, prison. In January of 1839, he is quite ill. Uh, Finally, he is uh, released in March of that year. They do make an appeal for an immigration uh, permit in order to leave uh, so that they can... Uh, return to prison so that they can leave uh, Prussia. Grabau takes the largest immigra- a group of immigrants, over a thousand people, uh, and they come over. He takes with him a couple pastors, particularly from Silesia. Uh, I think I uh, showed you, um, which, which was down here. Uh, He is down, I think, somewhere in this area here, Um, but both of them are in uh, Prussia. So, uh, they come over. Uh, The name of their church, which they established in America, was the Senate of the Lutheran Church emigrated from Prussia. That's my mom's ancestors right there, literally. Is it? No. Interesting. No, um, yeah, it is. And is so it they, they really? set up <laughs> over <laughs> over yeah. here. Yeah. Um, did I put... Where? Um, they were very gifted at name. Um, <laughs> they settled in... Some of them stayed in... Uh, the, the largest majority were in Buffalo, Some of them went on up into Michigan, uh, Frankenmuth area, uh, with the Silesia pastor uh, there. We'll talk about that another time. Uh, There is one other place. Buffalo, New York. Don't remember. Um, uh, Anyway, they come over. 1839, uh, quite a bit of them. 1840, Frederick William III dies. And so with him, the forcing of the Prussian Union, uh, the pressure goes away, and pretty well after his death, you don't see any more of these large groups of immigrants. There were quite a few, three, over three different ones uh, over two years and things of that sort. But this was the great push, and again, it definitely was, um, uh, due to the forcing of the Prussian king and his Prussian union and the being uh, imprisoned and things of this sort, uh, they saw no other, other way. And so finally, after fighting him and imprisoning them for 10 years, things of like that, he finally let them go. Um, but he doesn't last. So that gets us uh, with the Prussian immigration. I'm going to come back. We'll, we'll deal with what they do once, once they get here in just, just a little bit. Any questions? Saxon immigration. 1838-1839. Uh, in Saxony, there was not the Prussian Union. There was rationalism that was in charge. Uh, it was affecting, as I, I think I've talked to you about CFW Walther and how you know, uh, they delayed his ordination. Even after he was ordained, they're complaining about him because he keeps preaching uh, true Lutheranism. Uh, Martin Stephan uh, is a pastor at Dresden. Let me see if I can get to... It's kind of interesting what uh, what happens with... why Stefan happens to be... Born in Moravia, parents converted from Roman Catholicism, Stefan had studied at Halle and Leipzig, so the usual pietistic kind of stuff, but after a brief pastorate in Bohemia, he was called to St. John's Dresden, which is in Saxony, which had been founded during the Thirty Years' War, by Bohemian refugees. This congregation enjoyed a semi-independent relationship to the state church, including the right to call its own pastor, a privilege which continued long after the membership had thoroughly become German. So it was strongly conservative in theology, though somewhat pietistic in outlook, and Stefan attracted a large following of like-minded laymen. Among those drawn to him were a group from the University of Leipzig, that would include Walter and others, who experienced rationalism, uh, but they came to uh, Stephan and found that uh, he was preaching the truth. So even though he's in Saxony, because these bohemian refugees had their own stack of money and could you know control their own congregation Stefan ended up being able to preach and teach rightly and follow his own church order even though he was stuck in Saxony well these pietistic men that came to him looking at finally heard him preaching uh, the gospel and 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 these things uh, in 1820 uh he is making use of these pietistic conventicles. They were illegal, but he's using them in order to uh, uh, preach the truth. Uh, he also is arrested in 1836. Um, nevertheless, it's not all conventicles. He's also accused of, of some, uh, uh, some improprieties. Um, Pastors at this time, if they were going to minister to a lady, especially a young lady, they would often uh, do this while on a walk. That is, you would go to a public place, to a park, and you would walk side by side, and that way you could offer pastoral counsel, things of this sort, um, it would not be appropriate for this to be done in the pastor study, in the closed, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I'm not going to get into uh, a whole lot on, on some of these things. I'm going to try to stick to the doctrinal stuff. I will come back to that in uh, uh, one of the next lessons that, that we have. Um, with that being said, I need you to, I've got it. On here, it won't be as loud as it should be. It's about a five or ten minute uh, movie that deals with CFW Wather and um, uh, put together by Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Let's see if it works. Huh. the church. <laughs> what is the meaning of this? You know you are not gather privately for church services. This is not a church service. This is an illegal clandestine meeting. And the government makes laws determining when a person sees their pastor and when they do not tell it to the magistrate. This is an outrage. You can't burst in here like this. You are a brave soul. What is your name? My name is Carl Ferdinand Wilhelm Walter. C.F.W. Well, CFW Walter, I suggest you move back and rejoin the others, unless you'd like to join Pastor Stefan behind bars. Come on, Ferdinand, this is not the time. Break this up and go home. I don't want to have to come back here tonight. Something has got to change. Kent, let them continue to break up our meetings. We are doing the righteous thing and following the truth of God's word. This discrimination has got way. All right, they're running the credits, but I'm going to run past the credits so you can see just a little bit. Uh... But a letter from Pastor Stephen truly. I'm <laughs> to be a Lutheran, a real Lutheran, was near to a Reverend Stephan was a light shining in this darkness, and it was very easy to connect with the things he was saying. He was our mentor, older and wiser. My brother around this time began questioning his forgiveness, his entire faith in him But a letter from Pastor Stephan truly helped convince Ferdinand of the sureness of his beliefs. He credits Reverend Stephan as having saved his soul from hell. We formed a committee, which drew up a set of regulations for emigrants. It had gotten to the point where we saw no possibility of keeping our faith pure and unadulterated and of preserving this faith for our children and their descendants in Saxony. Ms. Gunther, we have arranged this meeting tonight at the request of Reverend Stefan. As we speak, he is counseling Ms. Sophie Heysel regarding the rather improper words to be directed at you. As well as the gossip she is spreading around the society about your character. Reverend Stefan wants you to know that he understands it is not easy to be his housekeeper. Yes, but his wife is always there when I clean, and she is always watching me. Other young women like Sophie, well they think you rather fortunate to be so close to the pastor and to get to know him so well. Ah <coughs> A step on. He is not here. That's not what I asked. Where is he? When will he arrive? I am not in charge of the pastor's comings and goings. We'll wait. Absolutely not. I've caused enough trouble already. You wait here until we make sure you're out of here. Stefan can care of you, too. Where is he? I don't know. We were informed that the Reverend would be here tonight. Where is he? I don't know. You mean to tell me that you are walking the streets alone? I haven't seen him since church on Sunday. I don't believe you. (coughs) I'm so glad you could join us, Reverend. No more. I can take this persecution no more. The oh, Lord will have his vengeance on me all. We shall see. Let's go. You know the way, right? Time to leave is upon us. You are correct, Reverend. Let's go. All right, <laughs> the, um, the movie, C.F.W. Walther, um, it's actually a uh, several CD, uh, DVD collection, um, it's, it's got the usual triumphalism, you already got that Carl Ferdinand and Walther, he's ready to take over and, and control. Anyway, um, But you get at least a little bit of the feel of the conventicles kind of being together, as well as the persecution that was going against him. Um, Next time I'll deal as well with, you already kind of get this idea, okay, here's the housekeeper, Um, this other gal has said something has happened, and so they're talking to the housekeeper, kind of going, you know, I'm sorry that they slandered you, and, and now the pastor's talking to the young girl because... There was already in uh, Germany some uh, accusations that, that had gone forward concerning uh, Pastor Stephan. What are conventicles? Conventicles are small group meetings that are apart from the congregation. So they are done in a home. What happened? What um, happened? by November 1838, two boats leave. There are five boats altogether. There's two, two more, and one more. Uh, They begin arriving in New Orleans in January of 1839. Uh, They wait there for a while. The smallest of the boats does not make it um, and is lost at sea. Mm -hmm. Those four boats then uh, having uh, a ride go on up the Mississippi on a steamboat they come up to St. Louis, Missouri uh, while they're up there they're looking for land trying to figure things out um, they find a piece of land that is near to St. Louis uh, Pastor Stefan, who has uh, become bishop on the way over uh, says no it's too close to the city The people will be corrupted by urban life. If we are going to be Lutheran, we're going to have to be out in a rural setting. They finally find some land down in Perry County, Missouri, um, and that is where they go. Um, Once they get down there, um, it's not long after that that uh, one of the pastors gives a sermon concerning... Uh, the Sixth Commandment and uh, sexual things and several women come forward and confess of having relationships with uh, Bishop Stephan we're going to find that uh, to cut it all kind of short today they are going to uh, remove him, they're going to send him across the river and send him to Illinois oh we get him. um (laughs) Uh, and he stays over here, I think it's the Redbud area, um, until his uh, death. Uh, there is pandemonium in the group um, concerning what are we going to do. Uh, we followed a man who is now shown uh, to not be faithful. Uh, what should we do? Uh, there is a layman. Uh, Carl Weza, who says, we all go back to Germany because we left our call, and this is what needs to happen. He is the only one, he and his daughter, who actually go back to Germany. And, and truthfully, even if they had decided that that is the right decision, most of them had spent all their money and couldn't do it anyway. Um, he goes back... Uh, uh, another layman named Marbach ends up having a debate. It's called the Altenburg <coughs> Debate between he and CFW Walther concerning what we do. Uh, when the debate <coughs> is done, and we'll get into that another time, uh, they decide that they are going to stay here. One, they are church. Uh, two, they need to give uh, congregational authority. This bishop thing isn't going to work. And we need to make sure that uh, the pastoral office has some safeguards to it. Um, and that is the way that it starts. Uh, C.F.W. Walther, remember his brother in the movie, pulls him back, his older brother. His brother dies. He was the pastor at Trinity Lutheran in uh, St. Louis. And they end up calling Carl Ferdinand there. And from that point, he becomes president, similar and kind of the whole thing. We'll, we'll get to that uh, next time. Uh, Winnegan. Uh, C.F. Uh He is a man who comes to America in 1838. He is sent over to provide for the people who are here. He comes and ministers for a while. He has throat trouble, goes back uh, to uh, Germany in 1841. When he goes, he does finally come back to the States, but while he is over there, he writes a... Uh, he writes an article in which he talks about uh, America. And about and he talks about the terrible conditions in America and how the people are not being served religiously and we need to help these poor people, our German brothers. It is, when it can please... Uh, to the people in Germany that gets them to start sending pastors over. Um, it is directly uh, due to his going around and telling them they need help. Um, Winnikin does end up returning to America. He does end up helping uh, form things, and he ends up, after CFW author, I think becoming the second senatical president, things of that sort. One of those persons who listened to him was Wilhelm Lea, Wilhelm Leah never left Germany, did not come to America, but probably had as much influence over American life of, of any. Um, influenced by nationalism, romantic movements, and listening to what Winneken said, he answers his call and starts uh, sending over um, emergency helpers. Now, Leah had a high view of ministry, uh, did not agree with uh, Walther concerning the uh, pastoral office, thought that they did at first. Later, uh, CFW Walthor, due to his run-in with Bishop Stephan and then the layman and what, you know, uh, um, has a weakened view of the pastoral office. And so later, uh, this uh, returned. But, Bill Leah does understand that in emergency situations, you have to do stuff. He trains men, I'm going to say a little bit, sends over these emergency helpers, and once they get over to America, these sendlinge, they are to receive further training, do whatever kind of catechetical work they can do while they are here and serving people. But then they would go to, and Leah helps to uh, start a seminary, at Fort Wayne, Indiana, the practical seminary, where they were to continue their training. And then they were to be ordained. He sends them off with all kinds of guidance. I'm, I'm, I'm out of time, but he's, he's got this thing where he tells them, listen, you don't go to those union churches. You make sure that they have a confessional standard. And, and he goes through and tells them all these things that they are to do. He is the one who helps to form... Um, I remember right the Iowa Senate he helps to form the Missouri Senate he works initially with the Ohio Senate Um, but as things go on we're going to find that all of these groups though they come from Germany by and large when Leah sends his men over when Grabow comes over and when the Saxon immigration they thought let's get together let's work this out now Here's the way we're going to end it. Uh, This lesson. Last time, it was Lutherans grouping together geographically. You know, oh, here in this region, let's try to work together. Even though the confessional standard may have not been real good, like the Henkels, they try to work with it and try to bring it along. When these immigration groups come over, even though the names of the synods are states, which we think of regions, Iowa Senate, whatever, it's not that kind of thing. There were already groups there. And these come along and said, we're organizing the German Senate. We're organizing a confessional group. So it was somewhat putting one on top of another. And they did it by nationality, and they did it by confessions. Yeah, I don't care what the North Carolina people are doing. We're having a group which is confessional and holds to the confessions. And so this caused some uh, disagreements. This caused some fighting. These groups thought they were all going to work together. out said, when we get over there, we'll work with the Saxons. Um, let's go talk to them. I, I, it, it should have worked. It didn't. Um, and we'll see what happens as they broke apart um, and, and as they then work back together we'll finally get back to our uh, chart where the various ones having been formed now go together break apart and come together into the larger groups and we'll kind of finish that part up questions? Well, when Kevin was sent to Redbud, did he go and form another church? He actually did serve a congregation there, and his housekeeper went with him. And when when he He died, she went back across the river and was accepted back into uh, what was Missouri at the point. Well, I mean, he served a Lutheran congregation? He did, absolutely And there, we actually have writings of him. Mm. Um, you know, so what, it, what, what group was Red Redbud in? I mean, what? It was just an independent congregation. Two, okay. Mm. Um, mm. And, and it all depends on. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know <laughs> that there's a. I, I just. will have to get through it next time. It's, it's a little more complicated. Um, we always want to know about the scandals. <laughs> How old is that? We have driven through Red here in the last couple of days here. And it, it just reminds me of a very old town. And it's got some beautiful buildings in there. And it just surprised me how old this town was and how gorgeous it was. Mm. Right, right. Um, his writings, uh, they, they did publish his writings a while back. Um, a very good long gospel concerning those. I guess if I'm going to leave you with a, uh, a question, which is uh, maybe the question: When you come over here from Germany, everything is kind of lined out. You follow an Episcopal government. Uh, you come over here. If you have a someone who is is. Immoral or doesn't follow, and, and you remove the guy from it. Do you completely change your polity, your your mm-hmm. governance, and all of a sudden decide, yeah, we're not going to do that at all. We're going to do a congregational polity, which hadn't. I mean, sounds like you're for If your... I if I do something wrong, you remove me as pastor. Do you go out and get another pastor, or do you change your entire governance? Because mm. someone had more. That's the question. And you go, well, now that's interesting. And guys like Grabau come to him and go, w- what are you doing? Well, you know, that's not the way we did it in Germany. Mm. Um, and you know, and and there are others who said, yeah, we got that. That um, we're confessional. So there were the questions that brought that up. Mm. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you promise us that you work within time and that you send men to where you want them to be and you set the limits for our not only our birth and life but also for our uh, influence in, in, in world events. We ask, dear Lord, uh, that we would trust in your word and sacraments that we would know that even the gates of Hades will uh, not overcome your church, but that you will maintain your church until you return. And so keep us faithful to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.